Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W.A.B. in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we near the end of another week sheltering in place. Motherhood is a complex role in life, and the portrayal of motherhood in films has not always been multifaceted. Today, Emory Film Professor Michelle Schreiber will discuss serious depictions of motherhood in three classic movies. If you've wondered what it's like to have Diana Ross for a mother, jazz artist Rhonda Ross Kendrick has sweet thoughts to share with us. First, some novel ideas for Mother's Day. You may know Allison Law as an Atlanta writer and creator of the podcast Literary Atlanta. She last visited us in December with ideas for books as holiday gifts and joins us now via Zoom with gift ideas for Mother's Day. Allison Law, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. I'm so glad to be here, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm giving your listeners the wrong impression. As you mentioned, was talking about holiday gift ideas, and now I'm back to talk about Mother's Day gift ideas. And I have to say that while I, I can be a good gift giver, there's no one more thoughtful than my own mother, Gail, when it comes to giving books or other things as gifts. So, um, And there's also no one more responsible for instilling in me a love of reading and teaching me the skill of resilience in tough times. So um, it's a pleasure to be talking to you in front of Mother's Day. Oh, I love that you started out with a tribute to your mom. Thank you, Gail. Now, during our last conversation, you said that a book is the ideal gift because it contains an entire world. With that in mind, the first world on your list is a brutal one. What do you admire about Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore? Well, I will tell you, she's the reason I'm going to be very sleepy today because I stayed up last night listening to the end of the audiobook because you know I love a good audiobook. And this is the world of 
West Texas, a little tiny oil town in Odessa, and it's Valentine's Day, 1976. And it is a brutal world because a 14-year-old girl there, uh, the daughter of an illegal immigrant, Gloria Ramirez, has survived a vicious attack. So it starts with Gloria's story, but then it turns into this beautiful Greek chorus of other women in Odessa who are affected by the aftermath of that attack. And it is brilliant. So many people are comparing this book to the writing of Elizabeth Strout and Hatchet Barber Kingsolver. And it's really a very driving story too, because you're very compelled to find out how, how everything will turn out for these women. And you grow very attached to them. You have a ranch hen's wife, who became pregnant and married at a young age and is still a very young woman who has very grown-up responsibilities. And then you have a retired school teacher who lives across the street from her who has just suffered the loss of her husband of many years. And you have this one incident that has thrown them all together and to hear their different voices, it's a great narrative. Ginger Eager is an Atlanta author. Tell us about The Nature of Remains. I'm so excited about this book. This is a debut novel from Eager. She grew up in Snellville, but the book takes place in the fictional town of Fly Shoals, Georgia. And the reason that we have this book is because it won the 2018 Association of Writers and Writing Programs Award for the novel. And one of the judges, none other than Paula McLean, who's the New York Times bestselling author of The Paris Wife. I love her writing. Yes, yes. I've read everything she's written. Well, she um, handpicked this book and has said that, you know, that the characters are shaped by powerful forces from within and without. They fracture and yield. They cleave blindly to the very patterns that will destroy them because the thematic core in The Nature of Remains is rocks and geodes and how mountains are formed and inevitably erode. She is an author who's very connected to the land here in Georgia, and her writing has been compared to Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell, which is a Southern literary standard. And I think it's because Eager is really adept in this book at writing the dialogue of working class people in the South. And I'm so excited for people to discover her book. The Prettiest Star is a book set during the AIDS epidemic. Yes, it is. And it's a different kind of homecoming story. If you are someone who, like me, who fell in love with Rebecca Mackay's book, The Great Believers, which is also set, one of its timelines is set in the 1980s, during the AIDS epidemic, then I think you will want to continue your understanding of that story through The Prettiest Star. This is a book about um, an 18-year-old Brian who leaves his town in Appalachia. He's fleeing his family situation and he finds refuge in New York City and the LGBTQ community that he finds there only to see it ravaged by the AIDS epidemic and become a victim to it himself. So he writes a letter to his mother and asks to come home to die. It's a very, very powerful book. It's 
again, shining a light on um, a time when we did lose so many young men to the AIDS epidemic. And it's also, as someone, I have studied uh, Southern identity when I was in graduate school. And so I am always intrigued by people who only come to identify as a true Southerner when they leave the South and come back. And that is the core of the story. This is Carter Sickle's second novel. While it is not coming out until May the 19th, I just think it's a book that you're going to want to pre-order and have it arrive on mom's doorstep when it comes out on May the 19th. High praise. Your next category is Summer Escapism Reads by Autobi Authors. What is an Autobi Author? An autobi author is an author who, no matter what the title of the book is, what the book cover looks like, what the subject matter is, you see that author's name and I'm automatically buying it. Or if you're, <laughs> if you're truly divine, you are pre-ordering it so it just shows up again on your doorstep when it's out. And these are, someone was saying, I think Entertainment Weekly was saying, the, the beaches may be closed or are starting to reopen, but they're always open in a summer read by Mary Kay Andrews. And someone else was saying too that Memorial Day is not the beginning of summer, it's when Mary Kay Andrews summer book comes out and that is aptly called Hello Summer this time. That book came out this Tuesday and it is about a newspaper reporter. This is another homecoming story, a newspaper reporter who flees her small town to take a big city paper job and then finds herself right back where she started working for her sister. The thing I love about Mary Kay Andrews' work is that it's just so funny. She has such clear voice in all of her novels, and I look forward to all of the laughs I know I'm going to have inside her books. Jennifer Weiner has a big summer. A big summer is the title of her book. I've been a fan of Jennifer Weiner's books. She's been an auto-buy author for me since her first book, Good in Bed and I can't stop reading her. This is another strong protagonist. She writes incredible women that you follow and, and cheer for. And uh, Daphne is the protagonist in Big Summer. She's been asked to be the maid of honor at an ex-best friend's wedding in Cape Cod. So only good and amazing things can follow. <laughs> She's a good essayist as well. Yeah, she's written some incredible nonfiction. I also enjoyed her memoir. Now, Terry McMillan has an autobi book you're up for. Yes, Terry McMillan, like many people, I didn't discover her work until they became movies. When uh, Stella Got Her Groove Back and Waiting to Exhale became movies, she grabbed my attention. And she has a new book out called It's Not All Downhill From Here. I love how she describes the unbreakable bonds of women friendships. And that is, again, at the core of It's Not All Downhill From Here. And a very reassuring title, especially yeah. during this time. <laughs> That's she's, right. She's a wonderful writer. You have included some books that are not fiction and that you have found especially inspiring lately. What are those? 
Well, I'm holding them. We talked a little bit in December about the tactile pleasures of holding the books and smelling the books. And I'm holding a copy of How to Be an Artist by Jerry Saltz right now. And this is the type of book that you will want to pick up and you can just kind of flip through its pages because it has these beautiful sleek pages and photographs. I just flipped to a photograph of Matisse working in bed, photographed by Clifford Coffin in 1949. And the accompanying story talks about an artist ritual, start working when you wake up. So it's an incredible read. I am being inspired by these little snippets of stories. Uh, don't define yourself by a single medium. And I'm always inspired by looking at the uh, accompanying visuals. So that was a book that I ordered as soon as I was in self-quarantine from Kira's Books and More. Another book that I think moms would love to have on their coffee table is a book that, it's a backlist book called In the Company of Women, Inspiration and Advice from Over 100 Makers, Artists, and Entrepreneurs. Grace Bonney founded uh, a blog called Design Sponge, and this was, it's filled with pictures of these incredible women artists, including Lizzo, that's who I flip to now, and a quote from her that says, women are the eyes and ears of the universe. So it's pictures of these artists in their homes with pictures of their art and interviews with them talking about, has learning from a mistake ever led you to success? So if you really want to be inspired, this is the type of book that you don't have to sit down and read cover to cover. Neither is the Salts book. These are ones that, again, you can keep at your fingertips. And when you need a little bit of inspiration from an incredible artist, they're right there for you. Beautiful books. We are very excited that an announcement came out Monday that Atlanta's own Jericho Brown, professor of creative writing and poet extraordinaire, has won the Pulitzer Prize. It was a wonderful coincidence for us because Monday, Allison on City Lights we rebroadcast conversation that I had with Jericho just ahead of the Decatur Book Festival last year. He was talking about the tradition, and now it has won him the Pulitzer, and I see it is on your list of books for Mother's Day gifts, this in the poetry category. Yes, if your mother loves and appreciates poetry, then she will absolutely love The Tradition by Jericho Brown. And I'm so glad that you rebroadcast that. You're so prescient. I don't know if it was prescient or he's, he's so brilliant and engaging and it just seemed time to revisit that conversation. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. And I'm glad that you had that on so I don't have to read his work. He does an incredible job doing that himself. But the tradition has some great themes of motherhood in it as well. It talks about the intersections certainly of race and class and sexual orientation does it in such a breathtaking way that 
it's hard to describe it. And then when you hear Brown talk about the form of poetry, it's mind boggling to me because I'm more of a prose girl, but I have such an appreciation for the scaffolding that none of us sees. We're, we're all just so in awe of, of his words. So I think, I think it's another one that you, you could grab and keep at your fingertips and then pick it up when you need some inspiration. Yes, his work in structure reminded me of Bach with the complexity of lines and the idea that you can appreciate the beauty of its content without necessarily understanding the form. But then when you are shown the components of that form, breathtaking is exactly the word to describe that genius. You're a great cheerleader for local indie bookstores, Allison, and I know you want to give a shout out to our local bookstores now as well. Yes. And I read an article the other day about how the coronavirus pandemic is changing how people buy and engage with books. I think it's making us rethink how we want to not just buy a book as a product, but as an experience. And Right now we're missing the experience of just idling into a bookstore and browsing and picking something that speaks to us. So uh, we're really more reliant on that ever than on having booksellers give us their recommendations. So I would say that there are a number of ways that you can do that from home now. Many of our Atlanta bookstores are operating on short days, but they're taking phone calls and they're taking online orders. Some of them, like Little Shop of Stories in Decatur and Acapella Books in Atlanta, are doing hand deliveries. They're doing no-contact delivery where they leave the books on your doorstep. If you need to get a book out to mom before this Saturday, then you should give them a call or order online. And if you're not near um, one of our Atlanta bookstores here, there's a website called bookshop.org where you can go in and you can buy your books there and part of the proceeds will go to independent bookstores. They've already raised millions of dollars for independent bookstores. So, Oh, um, that's great to know. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a, it was an, an amazing startup experiment that they thought would be, you know, just another way that people could make sure that they were supporting their independent bookstores, launched in January, and now they are one of the top 10 bookstores in the country because of our current situation. So you can go on the bookshop.org and it'll tell you how much money they've raised so far for independent bookstores. Allison, the last time you were here, you were telling us about your baby niece. And I couldn't help but think how fortunate she is to have her aunt as a literary curator already. How old is she now? She will turn one on June 4th. Oh, boy. Well, no doubt her bookshelves are already filled with wonderful reading. What have you come across that you particularly recommend for books that 
mothers and children or even fathers and children could read together? I am learning so much about children's books because I do have to make sure that this library is well suited for her. And Erin is already uh, in love with the very hungry caterpillar. She spends a lot of time with him. But before she was even born, I made sure that she had a copy of The Runaway Bunny by Margaret Wise Brown. Yes, one of my very favorites. And I have to confess, though, it has been well over 30 years since I read The Runaway Bunny to our children. It still comes to mind. I mean, possibly daily, because at its essence is this essential love for a child that a mother has and that cannot be shaken, that no matter where the child may go, the mother will follow. Right. And no matter what is keeping you distant or apart from each other at this time, you have your own stories that connect you. That's what the runaway bunny means to me. But I'm also discovering the books published by Peachtree Publishers here outside of Atlanta. And they fortunately came up with a blog post listing some of their perfect books that honor the mother-child relationship. And they are just beautiful. So I have put them all in a cart <laughs> at Little Shop of Stories, and I'm going to have them delivered to Erin. But there are these beautiful books called Little One, Little Whale, and Little Tigers. And they're illustrated and authored by a Scottish artist named Joe Weaver. And they talk about the different relationships that these animals have. Little One is about Big Bear and her cub. Little Whale is a whale calf and its mother swimming under the midnight skies and the coral reefs together. And then uh, Little Tigers is uh, about a mother tiger and her cubs and how they have to find a new home away from danger. Again, these are just beautiful, beautiful books that you will want to treasure with the child in your life, in my case, my niece. Writer Allison Law, she created the podcast Literary Atlanta and also worked with the Decatur Book Festival. Her recommended list of books to give for Mother's Day is on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Motherhood is a complex role in life, and the portrayal of motherhood in films has not always been multifaceted. Our guest today has done extensive research in the areas of feminist film and depictions of gender in popular culture. Professor Michelle Schreiber teaches film and media studies at Emory University. She joins us now via Zoom. Michelle, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. You have chosen three films, Stella Dallas, 
now Voyager, and Imitation of Life, each of which addresses social issues through the lens of motherhood. Where do we begin? Well, I think when we look to these past films, I think we assume that they present sort of outdated ideas of motherhood, sort of a single notion of what a good mother looks like. But these films actually have very dynamic and complex representations of mothers. In fact, all of them on some level represent what single motherhood looks like and uh, where men aren't necessarily central to the family unit. Uh, they're all, as you say, introduce different kinds of social issues. Uh, Cella Dallas introduces ways of thinking about class and how class figures into, again, how we conceive of a good mother, the degree to which a mother invests her own feelings and ideas and aspirations into her child. With Now Voyager, you have an idea put forward about biological motherhood as actually portrayed in a, in a negative way in this film, whereas adoptive motherhood is portrayed much more positively. And then with Imitation of Life, you have issues of, of race and class, uh, but uh, more predominantly race uh, negotiated in the film and the ways in which uh, race conceptions of self factor into uh, you know, who's considered a good mother, um, who's considered a, a, a not particularly attentive mother, etc. So these films have a lot going on, both in terms of the relationship between mothers and their children, but also how often motherhood and women's issues more generally are seen as a prism through which we can view what's happening socially and politically in, at the time which these films were made. Stella Dallas is based on a 1923 novel by Olive Higgins Prouty. Tell us about the 1937 film version. So Stella Dallas is a film that stars Barbara Stanwyck, who is just a dynamic actress from classical Hollywood period, probably, I think, one of the most underrated actresses from that period. She is extremely versatile. She played everybody from uh, the murderous femme fatale in Double Indemnity. She gives a great comedic performance in The Lady Eve. Uh, here she plays Stella Dallas, the title character, who is a working class young woman who aspires to be a part of the upper class. So she actively pursues uh, a man, Stephen Dallas, who is an executive at the company, uh, the, the plant where her brother and her father work. And this uh, pursuit is successful and they get married and she's able to be, to enter into upper class society. Uh, but she, does it all wrong. She essentially adorns herself with jewels and buys clothes that are deemed sort of inappropriate within this more conservative environment. She laughs too loud at the country club. She dances with other men. Once she has a child, 
she is seen to devote all of her energy to her child. Eventually, her husband Stephen wants to move elsewhere for his job, but she wants to remain in their house by herself because she feels like she's been able to enter into society. She doesn't want to lose that status. So she essentially functions throughout most of the film as a single mother, with Stephen only making the occasional appearance at, uh, at the house. One thing that is particularly interesting about this film is that we come to really identify and sympathize with Stella and her role as a single mother, but we also are frequently asked to see her through the eyes of these other more conservative upper-class characters where she's deemed just too much, like she just isn't behaving appropriately in their eyes. So what you're about to hear is a scene that sees Stephen, Stella's husband, returning to their house. Uh, as I said, he's living in another city at this point. And we're, we, he enters the scene that we're already in the midst of, which is Stella uh, is being visited by her friends and they're having a good time. One of them's playing the piano. And uh, her friend is interacting with Laurel, who is her toddler daughter. Now, when we're watching this scene, it seems perfectly carefree. But when Stephen, her husband, enters the scene, we see it through his eyes and we understand how he might interpret it as uh, maybe she's, there's sort of a party atmosphere, which may not be appropriate for her toddler daughter. Stella, I can't have our child living this way. What's wrong this time? It's not just this time. It's every time what I- What do you mean, because there was a couple of drinks? Well, what's wrong with that? Coming in here with that icebergy way of yours. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. But she's my child too, and I won't have this. I haven't wanted to take Laurel away from you, but if you- Take her away from me? What are you talking about? So, in the end, without a spoiler, we can say that Stella is the mother who lies and endures suffering in order to see her daughter triumph. Is that your assessment of the Takeaway from Stella Dallas, Michelle, sacrifice is the most important theme. Absolutely. It's uh, a film that demonstrates how mothers are expected to right, sacrifice for their children. She, again, without giving away any spoilers, does have to give up her own pleasure to a particular degree in order to see her daughter thrive and understand that for her daughter to get what Stella has always wanted for herself, to see her daughter get that, truly get that, to be able to really play that role that she has to sort of sacrifice her, her own wants and desires. The film scholar Janine Basinger says that anybody who doesn't cry at the end of Stella Dallas is dead inside. 
Oh my. And I think that's absolutely an excellent assessment of how the film eventually plays out. Your next recommendation is a film based on a novel by the same author whose book was the basis for Stella Dallas. Why is the work of novelist Olive Higgins Prouty important to cinema as well as fiction? Well, I think that the ability to tell stories about women and what uh, women go through uh, both personally but also interpersonally with other family members, with with children, I think uh, that's ripe for film adaptation, particularly during the 30s and 40s and in 50s when that was an era when Hollywood was really trying to connect with female audiences. And so having these complex stories, um, you know, sort of ready for adaptation, it just made for really, really excellent, dynamic female characters and and female stories. I read that the novel is considered to be among the earliest, if not the first, fictional depictions of psychotherapy, which was quite progressive for its time and, and, and very realistic as well because Prouty herself had suffered a mental breakdown in 1925. Would you take us through the story of Now Voyager in the film? So uh, Betty Davis plays a character by the name of Charlotte Vale, who is the youngest child of a very wealthy Boston family, the Vales. And Charlotte is considered an ugly duckling. She was born when it's conveyed her mother was in her late 30s, early 40s, which was quite late to have a child during that era. And Charlotte is uh, very essentially subservient to her mother. She's been sort of forced to be her companion, her constant companion. She even describes at one point that she's her mother's servant. And she's depicted in the film as very dowdy, not conventionally attractive. She's, you know, her hair is tied into a a bun. She's wearing glasses. She's not clothed in in a way that's revealing her body. So she's, she's very nervous. She's very uncomfortable. So one of her family members uh, it thinks that she might be on the verge of a, of a nervous breakdown. So she calls in a man by the name of Dr. Jackwith, who's played by Claude Rains, who runs a, a mental health facility called Cascade. And he visits her at uh, the Vale home. The clip reveals how Charlotte's relationship with her mother has really uh, caused her a lot of distress. My mother didn't think that Leslie was suitable for a veil of Boston. What man is suitable, doctor? She's never found one. What man would ever look at me and say, I want you? I'm fat. My mother doesn't approve of dieting. Look at my shoes. My mother approves of sensible shoes. Look at the books on my shelves. My mother approves of good, solid books. I am my mother's well-loved daughter. I am her companion. I am my mother's servant. My mother says, my mother, my mother, my mother. (laughs) 
So this scene is when Dr. Jackwith determines that Charlotte doesn't need indeed to go to his facility. And what happens throughout the course of the film is as a result of the therapy, she gets a cascade. You know, she comes to a better place with herself, but it's really a voyage, apropos to the title, that she takes on a cruise ship that really helps her come into her own. And it's one of the great makeover transformation films of all time, because you see Betty Davis go from, you know, that sort of dowdy, uh, ugly duckling version of herself to, you know, fully realized Betty Davis that we know and love and are used to seeing in films. So she goes on this cruise. Uh, she's given a wardrobe by a friend and she's essentially blossoms into this beautiful, confident woman who then goes on to have an affair uh, while on the cruise. You see Charlotte herself become an adoptive mother to her lover's daughter. She aspires to be a different kind of mother, one who is more supportive, who believes in the inner beauty of Tina, who's the, the daughter. And she sees this as a way of both, I think, un undoing a lot of the damage that her mother did to her, but also seen it as a way to connect with her lover, played by Paul Hundred, and create a sort of alternative family structure where she's essentially being, being her mother, being the mother that Tina always should have had. There is an iconic line, one of the great lines in all of American cinema. Essentially, at the end, when her lover, Jerry, is wondering how she can possibly make this sacrifice, which is to raise his daughter, but not engage in a romantic relationship with him. He's married still to Tina's mother, <laughs> uh, but that she, she's making this great sacrifice. And he said, are you going to be happy? doing this and she said let's not ask for the moon when we have the stars we both try hard to, to protect that little strip of territory that's ours we can talk about your child our child thank you and will you be happy charlotte oh jerry don't let's ask for the moon we have the stars it's a wonderful, beautiful line, but it also points to the fact that she's accepting a life where her energies will be channeled into her role as an adoptive mother, and she essentially is giving up a romantic relationship. She's giving up romantic love and, and presumably sex in order to be Tina's mother, because this is the only way that she can essentially be with Tina's father. So it is a beautiful, it's a beautiful line. It's a wonderful, it's one of the best closing lines of a film ever. But I think it's, it also should be, you know, discussed in terms of what, what does this mean for Charlotte as a character? 
that she's now going to pour herself entirely into motherhood, which she is able to do because of her economic circumstances, right? The fact that if there's any sort of social stigma associated with single adoptive motherhood, it doesn't matter in this context because she's the wealthiest woman in Boston. We'll hear more from Emory film professor Michelle Schreiber after a short break. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Emory film professor Michelle Schreiber. She's been talking about serious depictions of motherhood on screen in three Hollywood classics. Imitation of Life is one of the great films by a director named Douglas Sirk, uh, who is known as essentially the the best director of melodramas from the 1950s. He directed films, All That Heaven Allows, Magnificent Obsession. Imitation of Life was probably his most successful film. It's actually his last American film. He was a German emigre, and so he made, obviously, a number of films in the U.S., then returned to Germany after making Imitation of Life. And the film is, it's not necessarily a remake, but a redoing of a Fanny Hurst novel, which was first adapted into a film in 1934, directed by John Stahl. And uh, Cirque's version is, uh, you know, it, it keeps a lot of the same plot elements, but it really plays up and emphasizes the racial dynamics in the original story. Cirque was a master of using technicolor, the technicolor process, and the film is just beautiful to look at and really emphasizes this concept of surface. If you think about the title, the sort of imitation of life, the way in which, you know, the production design, the costumes are used really introduces sort of insider, outsider perspective on 1950s American culture. So on one end, you're getting this just beautiful, emotional film where you're really invested in the characters, but often you're asked to kind of look outside of these characters and understand them in terms of how they're negotiating conceptions of racial identity specifically in 1950s America. There are two sort of central tensions in the film, and the two main characters, Laura and Annie, meeting for the first time. They're they're both single mothers. Annie is African-American, Laura is Caucasian, and their daughters meet on a beach and are getting along 
very well. Um, Annie is essentially introduced as, and she introduces herself as a woman who is interested in being a sort of live-in housekeeper for Laura to, to help her take care of her daughter. And she essentially says, I won't eat very much. I'll be there when you need me. So I just need a place for my daughter and I to live. Sarah Jane's a lovely child. How long have you taken care of her? All her life. Oh, I wish I had someone to look after Susie. A maid to live in. Someone to take care of your little girl. A strong, healthy, settled-down woman who eats like a bird and doesn't care if she gets no time off and will work real cheap. <laughs> yes, if one exists. Oh, someday. Why not today? I'm available. You? Me, Annie Johnson. You mean you'd consider leaving that lovely little girl? Oh, I wouldn't be leaving her. My baby goes where I go. Sarah Jane is your child? Yes, ma'am. It surprises most people. Sarah Jane favors a dead. He was practically white. He left before she was born. Seems to me, Miss Meredith, I'm just right for you. So essentially, her motherhood is intertwined with domestic servitude. And Laura, on the other hand, is an aspiring actress, you know, at this point is unsuccessful, but we see throughout the film as the, you know, it evolves over the span of about 12-ish years. And you see them come of age, you see their daughters come of age. Annie does live with Laura, she becomes her confidant, but she's always in the background. She's always in the domestic space. So that's introduced in uh, that early scene, but also the fact that her daughter, she's light-skinned and she can pass for white. Initially, Laura doesn't recognize that Sarah Jane is Annie's daughter. And so this becomes the primary, I'd say, a driver of emotion and, and pathos in the film is that Sarah Jane recognizes, particularly in this era, that to be thought of as white is um, going to make her much more accepted from her perspective, will make her life easier. And so she's constantly rejecting her mother. She doesn't want to be seen with her mother. She doesn't want anybody to know that Annie's her mother. This is a, a, a constant source of tension and of real emotional impact in the film. Annie is very much more of a mother to Susie, Laura's daughter, who, as Laura becomes more and more professionally successful, Susie looks to Annie for emotional support. There's a lot of complexity here in terms of what does a good mother act like, look like, <clears throat> etc. And what, what, what is um, the, the relationship between mothers and daughters. And that can often um, cross lines that have nothing to do with biology, but have to do with being there, listening, being supportive, etc. So the sort of domestic motherhood of Annie is heralded in many ways throughout the film, whereas Laura, who is played by Lana Turner, and she just has the most magnificent, glorious costumes throughout the film. <laughs> I think I've heard that the, the costume budget was a, a, a very significant portion of the overall budget for the film. But she goes on to Broadway 
and she becomes almost like a performer in herself. And at a certain point, her daughter just is not buying her act anymore. And essentially, I believe says explicitly at one point, you know, that Annie has been more of a mother to me than you have. Michelle, during these weeks of quarantine, many critics have weighed in on gateway films, introductions to thematic viewing. Thank you for these suggestions specifically related to the maternal melodrama. It's been my pleasure. I, I recommend that everybody consider watching these films. It's really nice to, I think, take a break from the contemporary and move, move back to the classic and see what was Hollywood dealing with, with mothers, with women at this time. It's definitely more complicated than we might think. Michelle Schreiber is a professor of film and media studies at Emory University. On an upbeat note ahead of Mother's Day now, we'll hear from a proud daughter. Singer-songwriter Rhonda Ross Kendrick is part of an American musical legacy that shaped the culture of our country. She's quite literally a child of Motown, her mother being Diana Ross and her father, Barry Gordy. I spoke with Rhonda last year during the Atlanta Jazz Festival. Here, she talks about discovering her own voice and rhythm. I do feel like there are audience members out there or or lovers of Motown out there who would have liked for me to uh, be sort of the second coming <laughs> of, of that Motown thing. And what I say to that is there is only one Diana Ross and anyone trying to copy that is going to get their feelings hurt. <laughs> but, um, but I do think I am the next incarnation of what Motown was in that. It's not the same uh, genre of music, but what they were doing what my father and my mother and the other uh, Motown uh, stars of that early day, what they were doing was creating a music that was new, that was authentic to who they were and what their experiences were at the time. Um, they were thinking outside the box. They were not making music that someone else had dictated for them to make. They were following their own rhythm and their own melodies inside of themselves, whether or not that was acceptable in society's standards for them to be doing. Well, clearly and that was acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but it was acceptable because they stood on it, because they knew it, because they believed in it, because they celebrated it themselves. And so that's the lesson that I take from my parents and, and Motown in general. And that's the road that I've been on these 20, 25 years of creating my, my own music. I'm, I'm, following, I'm following the beat that's inside of me and what's authentic and real for me. Fantastic. And, uh, and, and, you know, and thinking outside the box and not being dictated to. I want to share with you because um, you do not live in Atlanta. If you did, we get to hear more yes. from you, I hope. But Motown is one of my cherished four M's which consist of Mozart, Motown, mm. Muppets, yes. and Mel Brooks. Uh, I love it. I love it. That's but so great. Motown 
was so critical to my generation. And and I'm on the younger end of it, a little younger than your mom. And, you know, I started listening when I was still in middle school. What you said about the authenticity, about that being the soundtrack for such a critical moment in American history. It's a good thing you didn't try to mimic because (laughs) that's where it lives, even though it lives on. Well, I believe that about all art. And I think we make a mistake with the Mozarts and the, you know, when we look back and say, that was great. I want to copy that <laughs> to in order to try to be great myself. It it never works. The copying never works. That's not what they were doing. And I think that that is is it just a mistake that we make as a society. Singer, songwriter Rhonda Ross Kendrick, daughter of Diana Ross and Barry Gordy. You've been listening to City Lights our daily exploration of Atlanta's arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with Camille Russell Love. She'll tell us about the Atlanta Jazz Session, celebrating 31 days of jazz virtually throughout this month. Speaking of jazz, our theme music is The First Time. Written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.